Thanks, Eugene. Good morning, Arcadia. How you guys doing? Good to see you. Uh, thanks to Sean for filling in for me again last week. Um, or the way it's been going lately, maybe I'm filling in for Sean this week, huh? What do you say? All right. So anyway, really appreciate it. You got us started on a new series. If you are new with us, my name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia. And uh, even that might be a little confusing to you. So let me tell you that Redemption Church is one church with seven congregations. And so you're in the Arcadia Expression. And uh, it was a little over three years ago that a couple of churches came together to form Redemption Church, churches that had already been uh, started. And um, uh, we've grown now to seven congregations. And you may wonder, why did you want to come together? And the reason is because we believe that we are better together. Uh, we're better resourced to do what God has called us to do, which is to proclaim the gospel and to teach God's word to people. And so uh, we think we can do that better uh, together and, and hold each other accountable and be able to teach each other and, and do all of those things that are really uh, healthy and important. And so our, our mission is to develop healthy congregations and to birth new congregations. And so we're constantly looking for new congregations to uh, birth as well. Uh, and training people to be able to do that. So that's a little bit about Redemption Church. Um, just to let you know before we get in today, I just want to let you know I'm, I am preaching injured today. Um, it's tough to do that. I almost had to go to the bullpen, but uh, I decided not to. Late last week, I broke very badly, broke a molar uh, back here. And um, this is the sort of the wimpy part of the story on a piece of pizza. So that kind of stinks, but... Um, <laughs> Anyway, it's broken, and um, I made the mistake of telling the dentist when I called that my pain on a scale of, of 1 to 10 was at a 3. Apparently, I needed to say 10 because they said, well, we'll see you Thursday then. So I'm waiting until Thursday uh, to be able to get in. But I am preaching injured. I kind of feel like a hockey player, you know. I'm, I'm playing injured, and it's a 2-3-lated injury, and so... You know, kind of, you know, during the NHL playoffs, I think it's just perfect. So I had to change my diet. I can't eat all the hard candy and biscotti and, and ice cream with nuts that I normally do. So I'm just drinking milkshakes and coffee now. So it's been actually pretty good, enjoying it very much. So I'm going to speak really fast this morning as well. We are in our second week of this series, a five-week series, just doing an overall um, uh, survey of what the Old Testament is about. Uh, and and the, the series... <clears throat> is titled and based on the premise, this truth, that God is faithful. God is faithful in everything. Uh, we have the tendency uh, to read the Old Testament as a series of smaller, disconnected, sometimes random stories. And one of the big points that we're trying to make during these five weeks is that it's not. It, 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 is, it is one theme one grand narrative. It is the narrative that we need to know, and the narrative is that God is faithful. God is faithful, as Sean said last week, in his covenant. God is faithful, as we're going to talk about this week, as he forms us as a people. God is faithful in formation. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about how God is even faithful during our rebellion. So those of you who know that you're really, really, really big sinners, you need to be here next week to hear how God is faithful to you, even in the midst of that. And then the last two weeks, we'll look at how God is faithful even when we are in ex exile, and God is faithful when we also return. And so today, we're going to talk about formation. Formation comes after covenant, after calling, after promise, but formation is also a part of our calling because we are not 
as God's people called just one time. That's one of the mistakes that so many of us make is that we assume that we get called once and we respond once and then that's kind of the end of the story. God and us, Jesus and us, we just kind of ride off into the sunset together. No, there is a constant continual calling on our life and there's a constant continuous response on our part. And so we're going to talk a little bit about giving you an overview of what formation means and then we'll get a little bit narrower and a little bit more specific with regard to the Old Testament, bring in a little bit of New Testament as well, and we'll wrap it up with um, a passage out of First Peter, which I know is strange, we're doing the Old Testament, but I want you to see how it all fits uh, together so uh, beautifully. Now, For those of you who do use your Bibles and have your Bibles open, I'm sorry, it's going to be a little bit frustrating today. We're going to be in a couple of different passages today, so we are going to have it on the the slides for you, on the screens for you as well, so that if you want to keep up that way, you can. But essentially, we will be in Exodus and we will be in 1 Peter uh, for the most part of the morning. So, an overview. Uh, First thing that happens is God calls his people. And we saw that last week. We also can see it um, in, uh, in, as, as uh, Sean talked about last week in Genesis. We can also see it in the book that we'll be in a lot this morning in Exodus. So for instance, in Exodus chapter 19, this is right before God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. This happens, starting in verse 3. While Moses went up to While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, or or the nation of Israel, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So, several hundred years earlier, God had started his people with Abram, or Abraham, And you heard all about that last week. He made this covenant. But you fast forward several hundred years and you find that his people are in slavery in Egypt and they're complaining and whining about it, desperately seeking to somehow be liberated from Egypt. And God finally does that. That's the story of the Exodus. Some people even call that uh, the Jewish person's gospel, the Jewish person's good news, that they are liberated and, and taken out of Egypt. And so God is recounting that for Moses. He's saying, I've done this for you. And it was just, it's just right there in their rearview mirror at this point. He says, I've done that for you. You. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Why is he telling them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Because this gift that he is giving them of being their peop of being his people, this covenant that he's giving with them is not a gift that they're supposed to just keep for themselves. Priests are ministers. They're purveyors of God's good news to other people. They they are people who want to proclaim this good news. And they are to be a holy nation. They are to be a shining example, a, a light and a blessing to everybody else. This is part of the calling. This is what he's telling them they are going to be as his nation. So you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the people of Israel. And so he's called them, and then he gives them the law, in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. And so we see they're called. Specifically, their response is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They're to be a light and a blessing to all the nations, to all the peoples. Their, their calling is a gift, and that gift is not just for themselves. And you hear this all throughout uh, Genesis. 
You read that all throughout Genesis as we saw last week. Well, it's also all throughout the Old Testament. This is part of what they're supposed to do. And this is the beginning of their formation. And so let me skip over now to 34 in that passage that Eugene just read. And you see that this passage begins this process of of formation for his people, starting in verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets out of stone, like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hands the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood before uh, before there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. God comes down to Moses and proclaims his name to Moses. In other words, this is the way I kind of see it. This was a sermon that God preached to an audience of one. It was Moses, and Moses is there listening to the preacher preach about himself, but it's God, so that's okay. See, we need to remember that although the Old Testament is filled with all of these characters and all these stories, ultimately the main character and the only story is really about God. The main character is God and the only story is about God. And we are all players in this story. There's significance for us, yes, but it's ultimately, it is about God. And so he begins to uh, preach this sermon. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. So here's God preaching a sermon about himself saying, listen, I am filled with love, I am filled with mercy, I am filled with grace, and I am also all about justice. It's like the perfect sermon to be preached. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, now if I found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So here's what's going on. God has called them repeatedly. He has coveted it with these people repeatedly. But the people are people. They're sinful. They're fallen. They're like you and I. And so they tend to resist. They tend to fail. They tend to think that they have a better idea about how to do things. They tend to get impatient. They tend to walk away. They tend to rebel. All of those things that you and I do when it comes to God as well. They've done all of those things. And so Moses, at the end of this this sermon, if you will, by God, has to go to him and say, we still want you with us, but I have to confess to you that we are sinners. We have a problem. And he even uses this little term that I love, which you and I don't use in our culture very much today. It's stiff-necked. Have you ever had anybody call you stiff-necked? Has anybody ever walked up to you and said, man, you are really stiff-necked? And I mean not like void of an injury, just like you're, you're a stiff-necked person, right? None, right? Has anybody ever called you stubborn? Those are synonyms. <laughs> stiff-necked, stubborn. Here's what it means. You think you have everything figured out and you have a better way than God. You're stubborn. You're stiff-necked. That's what he's saying. And these are a stiff-necked people. And we are a stiff-necked people as well. We are stubborn as well. And so Moses is confessing this to God and saying, will you still go with us? And God says this, behold, I am making a covenant. He's all about this covenant, man. 
Before all your people, I will do marvels such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Here is the beginning of this formation language that we have. In the midst of all of this, God is going to form his people. He's going to form you and me as well. Formation consists of calling, us responding, and sometimes us not responding very well. Sometimes us responding in rebellion or reticence or whatever that is. But we are constantly called. And that calling is a gift that has been given to us. And this gift should bring us gratitude, which should then transcend into generosity. A generosity of being a blessing and a light to other people. A generosity of sharing the good news of God and what he's done in our lives with other people. A a, a generosity of telling people the gospel. And we are constantly called. Here you go. In the New Testament, Peter uses this formation, covenant, exodus language. In chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, Peter says in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. You are to proclaim the gospel. You are to be a light and a blessing to other people. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you, you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as outsiders, as people who have the truth but are not seen as people who have the truth, you are to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You're going to be battling sin your whole life. That's why the Holy Spirit has come to help you with that. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Among among the nations, keep your conduct among those people who don't know me yet honorable so that when they speak of you as evil speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation in other words you're to be a light and a blessing to the rest of the world that is our call and you're to do it under any circumstance in any context no matter what we receive this gift from God that gift we should be grateful for it and that gratefulness should then transmit into generosity and we should be generous with that and so this This process of formation is call and response, call and response constantly over and over and over. It was for the Israelites, it's for you and me today. And through that formation results, even when we rebel and resist and we fail. And and, and this is, by the way, this is the reason why we so desperately need the gospel in our lives. We can't do this without the gospel. Many of us as evangelical Christians, I've been guilty of this myself, We think of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came, that he lived the perfect life, that he died as a sacrifice for our sins and he was raised again uh, uh, to give us eternal life. We think of the gospel, the good news, as really only having to do with salvation, that we tell this so that people would know who Jesus is, so that the Holy Spirit might open their eyes and their heart to the truth of of who Jesus is and they might come to know Jesus and, and we fail to remember that the gospel is more than that. It is certainly for salvation, but it is also for formation. It's for sanctification. All of our lives, every last bit of our life is, is, should be lived in the gospel, by the gospel, through the gospel, and by the power of the gospel. The gospel is not just for salvation, it's for all of life. And without the gospel, this process of life that everybody goes through is eventually going to defeat us. 
It's the only hope that we have. And that's what's going to form us. And this side of heaven, whether it's Israel or you and I today, we never get past the fact that God is holy and we're not. And there's tension there because of that. And so we need the power and presence of God in the midst of that in order to help form us. This is a major threat in the Old Testament. This constant calling and response and and failure and rebellion and resistance and sinfulness. And it's a major threat in the lives of those of us who know Christ today. And in the midst of all of this is, is this theme that we have, that God is faithful even in the midst of that. We so often think, that's it, we've failed. God doesn't want anything to do with me anymore. Nope. He's going to come to you, He's going to minister to you by the power of the Holy Spirit, and He's going to use that to form you. God is faithful. God is faithful with His forgiveness, with His love, with His mercy, and He's faithful with His discipline as well, with His rebuke as well. And and He's faithful in the midst of that constant tension to form His people. And we resist that. We don't want the tension. But that tension is what what molds us and shapes us then and now. It's part of the purification of our lives. It's uh, James, in his letter in the New Testament, he's got a little three-verse section that is a perfect example of this. He, he starts his letter by saying this. He says, Consider it all joy, beloved. You should count this as something that's good for you, beloved. When you experience, when you encounter trials of various kinds, literally the language is trials and tribulation of multicolors. In other words, the temptation of sin, the suffering of life, and the challenges that we face are going to come at us in different different shapes, different sizes, different colors, different temperatures. We're going to have red challenges, blue challenges, green challenges, yellow challenges, white, black. Every color is going to come at us. Consider it joy when all of these different trials and tribulations come at you because it is in the testing of your faith The Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of us, living inside of us, the power of the resurrected Christ. And that faith is going to be tested by these these trials, these sufferings, these tribulations, these temptations. That testing of that faith is what's going to help make that faith strong. It's going to develop for us, James says, this thing called hupomene, which has been variously translated as endurance, perseverance, patience, and steadfastness. If you want to be a person of perseverance, endurance, patience, and steadfastness, you need to have your faith tested. The Holy Spirit needs to be at work in your life. And James goes on to say that that will will end up producing in you maturity. Formation. This is how God forms us. He's calling us and we're responding and we're living lives and, and, and we're resisting. And he uses that to form. And we see this When we see this, especially in the Old Testament, you and I can stop reading the Old Testament the way so many people do as a series of of, of disconnected, random stories. No, everything in the Old Testament points to the same thing. God's call, God's purpose, our resistance and struggle, God's faithfulness, God's ministry in our lives, our formation, God's redemption, and ultimately God's restoration. That's what it's all about. And all of these stories, these passages, these verses, uh, these pericopes, whatever you want to call them, 
All of it in the Old Testament is part of the grand narrative of God's work in and through his people, no matter how unique and random they, they appear, but they are for his purposes. And that would be formation that we're talking about today. And so you look at some of these stories that, are, that we know so well. Joseph, formation occurred because God was constantly with him. There's, a, there's that theme in the story of Joseph in, in the last 13, 14 chapters of Genesis where it says that the Lord was with Joseph and that helped form him. Then Moses. Moses was actually formed primarily by the fact that for decades it seemed like God wasn't with him, but God was absent. Do you ever feel like God is absent? Sometimes he uses that to form us. There's Gideon. Gideon experienced formation as, as God opens his eyes to reality and engenders courage in him. And there's Samson. Samson experienced formation as God closed his eyes. There's Deborah. Deborah experienced formation through the raw power of God working through her. And Ruth. Ruth experienced formation through God's tenderness. And Saul. Saul experienced formation through discipline, repeated discipline. And David. David experienced formation through the leadership gifts that he was given. Those gifts that were both an asset and a liability in his life. And and God used all of that to form him. And, And the greatest prayers that we have in the Bible are mostly David's prayers in the book of Psalms demonstrating that formation. There's Daniel. I love the story of Daniel because if there's one word that I think describes Daniel, it is unflappable. Nothing flaps Daniel. Anything in the the world can come at Daniel and he's just the same. I'm telling you, if ever there was a gift that God could give me, it would be that unflappableness that he gave Daniel. The ability to to experience anything and and, and just see it all for what it exactly is. That was Daniel. He, He was formed through his unflappableness. Jeremiah was formed through grief. Esther was formed through this amazing, unexpected courage that she suddenly had in chapter four of that book. And Ezra and Nehemiah are formed through God's faithfulness. Um, This morning, one of my pastor friends, Chris Gonzalez, sent out a tweet, and it was like he was helping me write the sermon this morning. He tweets this. Seems like every passage in the Bible is somehow God saving and shaping, another word there would be forming, a people for his purposes. Every passage in the Bible is God saving and shaping, forming his people for his purpose. Now, yes, each of these stories and characters has what we would call, what I would call local application. You can, you can kind of pull the story of Joseph out of its biblical context and you can teach all the principles from Joseph's life and say, here's how you can do this better and here's how you can have a better attitude about this and here's how this is gonna be better for you in your life. And, and frankly, I like that kind of teaching. That's, 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 I, I'm one of those people who enjoys doing that kind of teaching. Nevertheless, if you stop there, you haven't told the whole story because they all fit into a bigger whole. And that's formation for God because God is faithful to form us. Faithful through his call, through our response, no matter what our response is. And it's it's a theme that Paul uses constantly in his New Testament writings, especially Romans as well. Now, I want to give you for like the next 15 minutes, and this is kind of how we'll wrap up other than a passage in in, um, 1 Peter. I want to give you... Two other examples in the Old Testament of how this works. Just, just to help you start thinking along these lines of seeing how God forms people and God is faithful in his formation 
of his people. Um, some people would call these stories second-tier Old Testament stories. They're not as popular or as well-known as the ones that I just mentioned. Nevertheless, they're important stories, and they are helpful to, uh, in terms of getting us to see what we're talking about here. The first one is, is about this guy named Balaam. Now, the story of Balaam occurs in the book of Numbers. And some of you right now are going, I've never heard of Balaam, and no, no, no wonder. It's in the book of Numbers. Who reads the book of Numbers, man? Well, you're missing out. I know that Numbers is mostly just a bunch of names and, gene, and, all, and, and, and numbers, but, but it, there's, some good, there's some other stuff in there too, and Balaam's one of them. I won't read it. It's chapters 22 through 24, but I'll summarize it for you. So Balaam is a pagan priest. And he's hung out his sign. He says, hey, pagan priest for hire. I will bless people and I will curse people. You just need to pay me the money and I'll do whatever it is you want me to do. So I'll bless people you like. I'll curse people you don't like. And my guess is, just knowing the way human beings think, he probably got a lot, made a lot more money on the cursing than the blessing, okay? We're, we're more apt to pay people to curse our enemies than to pay people to bless our, our friends, Okay? And so he's got this sign out, but he's not a, he's not a part of Israel. He's, he's separate from Israel. So it's interesting that it's included in this story. And it's during a time that the Israelites had just come out of Egypt, and it's during this, this period of the 40 years when the, uh, when the Israelites are wandering around the, uh, the wilderness. They're, they're, they're in that liminal space between having gotten out of Exodus and, have, and not having entered the promised land yet. Well, the problem is, is that as they were wandering around, remember there was about two million of them, as they were wandering around that vast geographical neighborhood in the Middle East, they were making all of the other nations, all of the other people groups very nervous. They were worried that they were going to get attacked by the Israelites. And so this guy named Balak, he's the king of Moab, one of, one of these nations that's nervous about the Israelites, he gets very nervous about them, and so he goes and he calls on Balaam. And essentially, here's what he says to Balaam. It's in Numbers chapter 22, verses 5 and 6. He says this, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth. In other words, there's a lot of them, and they're making me nervous. And they're dwelling opposite me. In other words, I feel like they're setting up and getting ready to maybe attack. Okay? So they're dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. And he brings Balaam a ton of money and goodies. He just brings all this stuff and says, here you go. All of this is yours if you'll just go and curse these people. Well, interesting, Balaam has heard about the Israelites too, and as a result, he's heard about this Lord Yahweh guy that seems to be in charge of the Israelites, and he's a little bit intimidated by him. And so he says to Balak, he says, all right, look, I'll tell you what. I'll go and ask this Lord guy what he thinks, and then I'll let you know if he says it's okay. I'm, I'm not going to just curse them. I'm going to go and ask their Lord first. And so he goes to the Lord and he says, what do you think? And the Lord says, no. That was the end of the conversation. <laughs> You're not doing it, okay? So he goes back and he says, can't do it. So Balaam kind of reconnoiters and brings two times as much stuff. Goes back to Balaam and says, here, I'll give you all this stuff. Please, go back and ask again. And, and Balaam says, all right, don't, uh, don't get your hopes up. I'll ask him again. So he goes to God and he asks again, 
God was a little annoyed that he asked again. Okay? Now, he did seemingly change his mind. He says, all right, go to Balaam, Balak, go to him, take the trek there, and listen to what his requests are specifically, again, and then do exactly as I tell you to do. And so now Balaam's thinking, okay, I got a foot in the door. Maybe I'm going to get paid anyway. This is going to be the biggest payday of my life, okay? So the next morning he gets up and he loads up his trusty donkey, okay? And, and he gets it all ready and now they're heading off to, to see Balak. And they come to a, 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 a narrowing part of the, the path. And, and, and as they get there, an angel of the Lord appears in front of the donkey and, and blocks the way so that the donkey can't go. God opens the eyes of the donkey, but not Balaam. So the donkey sees the angel of the Lord and stops, and Balaam doesn't. Now, even if you've never read the book of Numbers or the story of Balaam, some of you maybe have heard that there's a story of a talking donkey in, in Scripture. Well, this is the story. So not only does God open the eyes of the donkey, but he also gives him a voice. And, he, and, 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 and after he stops, Balaam starts beating him because he's not going. He says, we've got to get to Balak and the money, okay? And he's beating the donkey. And the donkey looks at Balaam and says, why are you beating me? I, I've never been a bad donkey. I've always done what you asked me to do. Just this one time I stop and now you're punishing me? You're violently punishing me? What's going on? And amazing, it's amazing to me because Balaam looks at the donkey and goes, oh, oh yeah, you're right. You've been a good donkey. <laughs> I would have looked at the donkey and said, I can make a lot more money with a talking donkey than with this blessing and curse thing, you know. So let's head back and set up Freak Show on Channel 45. So anyway... Uh, so he says, no, you've been, you're right, you've been a, a good donkey, okay? And then he, God opens Balaam's eyes, and Balaam sees the angel of the Lord. And God has his teachable moment. And God says this to Balaam, he says, you know, I came out to oppose you on this trek because I had originally said no to you, yet you came to me again. And here's what he says to him, he says, because Balaam, you are a man of perverse ways. You're a perverse man. You're a greedy man. All you see is the payday. You don't see the importance of being obedient to me. You're a perverse man. And then I give the donkey eyes to see the angel and he stops and you further demonstrate just how perverse you are by beating the donkey for no good reason. You really are a perverse guy, Balaam. And God has this teachable moment with Balaam. And, and Balaam hears this and he goes... Yeah, okay, I get it now. And so God says, all right, look, I'm going to unblock the path. You're going to go to Balak. You're going to listen to him, but you are going to do exactly as I tell you, right? Yes, that's what I'm going to do. So he goes to Balak. Balak asks several different times, comes at him several different times, please curse these people. Please help me. And each time, Balaam responds with an oracle that God has given him to Balak. Now, what's an oracle? An oracle is a direct message from God through a prophet. So now this pagan priest, who is not a part of, an, of Israel, has become a prophet of God. It's an amazing story. And I won't read the oracles to you. You can read them. But here's what they say, essentially. They say, listen, God has already blessed Israel. It's futile to try to curse them. God is with them. God has promised them. He's made this covenant with them. And there's no kingdom who can come against them. It's not going to happen, Balak. Now, I 
I think it's easy to see the, what I call the local application in this story. Here you go. Sometimes God lets you and I have our perverse way so that then when that perverse way doesn't work, he has a teachable moment in our lives. Amen? Right? Oh, that's easy. That's easy to teach that, man. But here's the deal. This is part of a bigger picture that God is, is getting through to us. It's a demonstration that God protects and provides for his people even when they don't know he's doing it. At this moment that this is happening, the people of Israel have no idea that it's happening. They find out about it later. That's why it's included in Scripture, but they don't know it's happening. Do you understand how often God is protecting and providing for you and me and we don't even realize it? And we don't even get the chance to say thank you to him for that, but he's doing that constantly. He does that throughout the Old Testament. And God will use whatever he deems necessary for his purpose, even if it's a pagan priest. That's shades of Romans 8.28. And we know God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He'll use anything. We, we find that the plans of God cannot be overrun by human will. And then here's the big one. The people of Israel are being formed by seeing God work through people who aren't even with them for their benefit. They eventually figure this out and see that God has been protecting and providing for them in this huge way. And we see this principle throughout the Old Testament and it helps to shape and form them. And they, and they begin to realize it's, it's God's faithfulness that is doing this for us. No matter how unfaithful we are to him, he is still faithful to us. Here's a second one. Not as long a story, but just as good. It, fast forward several hundred years. Now we're in the book of 2 Kings, which for you biblical scholars is right after the book of 1 Kings. So this is hundreds of years after this story of Balaam. It's a story of Naaman. Now Naaman is the commander of an army of, of, of a nation that again is, is, a, is a, uh, an enemy of Israel. He's the commander of the army of Aram. And, and so think of it this way. Um, if you saw the movie Gladiator, Naaman is Maximus. Okay, he's Russell Crowe. The, the one difference, though, between Maximus and Naaman, though, is that Naaman has leprosy. And nobody wants to have leprosy. So he's on a campaign at one point, and he captures this young Jewish woman, young Jewish lady, and he makes her a slave. And she says, you're going to be my slave. In fact, you're going to be my wife's slave. You're going to be... The, I own you now and you're going to be the servant of my wife. So as this young Jewish woman, this captive, is serving Naaman's wife, she begins to see Naaman's miserable plight in life with his leprosy. And so she goes to the wife of her captor, the wife of her slave master, and she says, hey, I know a guy. You ever been in trouble in life? You don't know what to do, where to turn, and somebody walks up and says, hey, I know somebody. I know somebody who can help. Well, this is what this young Jewish slave woman does for her captor. I know a guy, and his name is Elisha. And so they get things all arranged, and, and Naaman goes to Elisha, and, and they knock on his door, and Elisha doesn't even come to the door. Instead, he sends a servant out to Naaman. And Naaman's a little bit troubled because he wants to see the great prophet Elisha, but he's talking to a servant. And then he gets even more troubled and he gets downright offended and insulted because the servant tells Naaman, here's what you got to do. You just go down to the uh, Jordan River 
and, and dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times and the last time you'll come out and your skin will be white as snow. It'll be clean. You'll have no more leprosy. And, and Naaman hears this and goes, you're whacked. I'm not doing that. And one of the reasons he says this is because the Jordan at that time was the filthiest, most vile river that you could possibly wade into in that area. It even says it in the scripture. It's, it's, it's just known as being vile. Why would anybody want to go in that river and dip themselves to, to cleanse themselves of leprosy? That just makes no sense. So he gets very angry and he gets back up into his caravan and in and and a big huff, they leave. He says, I'm not doing that. I'm not even dignifying that response. And, and then one of Naaman's servants kind of sidles up alongside of Naaman and he says, hey, listen, boss, I was thinking about this. By the way, you and I need people like this in our lives. He said, boss, I was thinking about this. What, what, what would it hurt? What could it possibly hurt if you went down there and just, just dip yourself in the river seven times? We'll find a place where nobody's watching. I've got a towel here too. It'll be fine. Just go and, what do you got to lose? If you still have the leprosy, you haven't lost anything. But what if it works? So Naaman finally goes, okay, all right. So he goes down there, he dips himself seven times. Last time he comes out, white as snow, clean. So now he's pretty excited goes back to Elijah's house and offers him a bunch of money. He says, I, I, can't, I can't take this gift from you without offering you something. And, he sa- and, and Elijah says, no, I'm not going to take any money. I'm a minister. I don't do that. That's not why I'm doing it. And, and Naaman says, now I know that the Lord God of Israel is the one true God. And so then he leaves. But that's not the end of the story. Interestingly enough, a lot of us tend to forget there's a little bit more of the story. There was a servant of Elijah's named Gehazi. Gehazi overheard this exchange where Naaman offered him all this money, all this stuff for healing him and saw that Elisha didn't take it. And so Gehazi waits a few minutes and then he, he kind of goes to Naaman, well, that's it for me today, boss, I'm done. And then he takes off after, after Naaman. And he goes and he catches up with Naaman and he says, hey Naaman, um, I'm Gehazi. I don't know if you remember me from back at Elijah's house, but um, Elijah had a change of heart and uh, he wants the money now. So if you just give me the money, I'll be glad to take it to Elisha and everything. So he gets the money and he goes back. And, and when he gets back, Elisha confronts Gehazi and he says, so why did you go after him and get the money? And Gehazi, of course, denies it. I mean, this is shades of Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira lie to Peter. That didn't end well for Ananias and Sapphira, if you recall. Okay? And so Elisha says, well, Gehazi, here's what's going to happen to you. Guess who ends up with Naaman's leprosy? Gehazi. Yeah. It's an interesting story. Now, again, local application. I mean, it's so easy. Very often, God uses things that we would never use in order to bless others, you know, the Jordan River, okay? It's kind of shades of when they said of Jesus, he can't be a prophet, he can't be a rabbi, he can't be the Savior, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Well, Jesus came from Nazareth. Other local application would be this, you and I often get jealous when when God blesses others and we get nothing out of it. You ever notice that? We don't like to admit that out loud, but how often in your heart are you seeing someone else, especially someone you and I don't think deserves it, getting blessed by God, and in our hearts we are shrieking, not fair, not fair. Look at me, a servant of the Lord. 
I read my Bible and I pray. And I judge others. Why doesn't God bless me? We scream that in our hearts. But really, the big picture is what counts. God's people are called to bless and be God's light no matter where they are, even if you're a slave, even if you're in Babylon, which we'll get to in two weeks. And God is sovereign. He's going to have compassion on whom he will have compassion. He's faithful in that regard. It is because he's sovereign that he can be faithful the way he is. And God continues to form his people even hundreds of years after the exodus through the lives of those who bless that little slave girl who no matter what her circumstance was, she was going to be a light and a blessing to others and through the teaching of those who resist Gehazi. This is all part of our formation. You read through the book of Exodus. Just, just re- I know it's hard reading sometimes, but read through the book of Exodus and you see this constant pattern calling Response, resistance, formation, covenant, calling, response, formation. And it goes on even beyond Exodus. Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the historical books. You read the prophets, it's about formation. You read the Psalms, the prayers. The Psalms help to form us. God is faithful in his formation. And then again, as I wrap up, you you get to the New Testament and you hear Peter once again using this this formative language in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, where he writes this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, think clearly, think through the grid of God's teaching, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Christ and Him alone. Our hope is in His grace, His love, His mercy, His sacrifice, and His life. So set our minds fully on that. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. As it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We are called to be formed. We are called to pursue holiness. We are called to pursue sanctification because that's what he is. We are called to that as well. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us to help us do that. And if you call on him as, a, as father who judges impartially according to each one needs, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In other words, you're supposed to do this even when times are hard and tough and you're sitting there having a pity party saying, woe is me, life sucks. We are still called. And we must respond in the midst of that by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. Your sin hasn't, your life hasn't been given to you as a result of anything that's common. But rather, it's been done with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Christ died for you and me. We can say that. It was for us. In God's love, in His mercy, in His grace, in His justice, in His full knowledge, and in His sovereignty, He came to save us, to rescue us, to give us, you and I, life and to give it to us abundantly. Who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory. 
so that your faith and hope are in God. That's where our faith and our hope come from, and that's how we are formed. We are formed by being called constantly. We are formed through our responses, whatever they are, and we learn from our various responses, and we are even formed in our resistance. And it's done because he's given us the helper. John, uh, uh, Jesus tells us in John 14 and 15, the paraclete, the, the Holy Spirit, who has come. We are called and we are formed constantly. That's the gospel. That's the good news. God is faithful. 